Coming up on Tech Nation, as concerned as we are with the impact of social media in the United States, what about in other countries all over the globe? Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk join me from Freedom House. We'll talk about the new report, Freedom on the Net 2019, The Crisis of Social Media. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft surprises us with a reemergence of what was mostly considered recreational drugs. That's right, psychedelics are back. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Dr. Savante Pabo, the author of Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I asked him, we used to wonder whether Neanderthals ever interbred with modern humans. Is that debate over? Yes, I would say so. So by looking at the genomes of Neanderthals, we can now really show that pieces of their DNA has made it into people who live today. So that Neanderthals live on a little bit, if you like, in people today, if your ancestor comes from Europe or Asia. So it's not everybody, but we can tell the, the, the people who migrated through the Europe and Asia, the northern part, could have a little piece. Yes, so everybody who comes from outside Africa have pieces of Neanderthal DNA in them, whereas people in Africa do not. Now, remind us, 40,000 years ago, some band of people left Africa, emerged out, and that's really where everyone else came from today. Um, and they, when they made it up into Northern Europe, that's where the Neanderthals were. Yes, so our best model for how this happened was that when modern humans emerged in Africa, they spread, of course, not only in Africa, but also out of Africa. And they then have had to pass by the Middle East. And we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East at that time, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And those people there, if they then mated with Neanderthals and became the ancestors to everybody outside Africa... So they sort of absorbed a little bit of DNA from Neanderthals and then carried it with them when they spread across the world so that we find Neanderthal DNA today in people not only from Europe and Western Asia where Neanderthals have existed, but also in Native Americans or in people in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, even places then where Neanderthals never existed. It was carried through other people getting there. Yes. Now, George Church was here, the famous uh, Harvard geneticist, and he says, I've got even more Neanderthal in me. Can't take a look at me. <laughs> you know, so there's variations as to how much you might have in you. There's a little bit of variation. It's not that much variation. In Europe, it's in the order of 1% or so of the DNA of any individual. It's slightly more, actually, in East Asia. And there are good evidence now that one mated at least another time with Neanderthals, perhaps in the Central Asia or so, when people migrated to the east. Now, the Neanderthals, they existed well before the Homo sapiens. Yes. So depending a little on how we define a Neanderthal morphologically from the remains of their bones, they appear something between three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia. 
whereas modern humans appear somewhere between 100, 200,000 years ago and start spreading out of Africa something like 50, 60,000 years ago. My goodness, they started and they ended and we're still going. Yes, and they existed even longer than we have existed so far on the planet. Ah, lesson to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it sort of puts it in perspective a bit who is successful. Now, how long have you been trying to get DNA from Neanderthals? Well, so this really goes back to the early 80s when I, I started my PhD in molecular biology back in Sweden. Uh, I had previously studied Egyptology and thought I would become an Egyptologist and got disenchanted with that and went to medical school. But I was then aware that there were thousands and thousands of mummies of both animals and humans in museums from Egypt and started looking into if people had tried to extract DNA and replicate it in bacteria from these things. And as far as I could make out, no one had tried, so I started Dr. Savante Pabo directs the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. In 2010, his team was the first to reconstruct a nearly complete Neanderthal genome. This 2014 TechNation interview discusses his book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk from Freedom House, a nonprofit with a long history and a global focus. We'll be covering the new Freedom House report, Freedom on the Net 2019, The Crisis of Social Media. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will be telling us about the emergence of what was considered recreational drugs and is now having a resurgence as therapeutics. It's a new life for psychedelics. And now Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk. Adrian and Ali, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're both from Freedom House, and whenever I hear Freedom House, my mind immediately rushes to Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the first lady and wife of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our 32nd president. And before we get to the report uh, that we're going to focus on today, let's go back, if you will, to the beginnings of Freedom House. Tell us about the, the early days of Freedom House and, and how it came together. Sure. So uh, Freedom House was founded in 1941, in many ways at the initiative of Eleanor Roosevelt and a gentleman named Wendell Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie was a, the main opponent of FDR in those recent elections. And after the elections, he sort of had a more isolationist viewpoint on America's role in the world. And after he lost the election to FDR, he teamed up with Eleanor and said, you know what, actually, uh, I had it all wrong. I actually believe that America should should be a force for democracy, um, that we should be fighting for democracy around the world. And uh, so I'm going to join with you and we're going to start this organization called Freedom House to advocate for uh, democracy in America's foreign policy. And of course, 
it's a nonprofit. Where does the money come from? So it comes from a variety of sources, and it sort of depends on what we're doing. Um, Freedom House does three groups of activities. One of them is uh, research, and that's you know where we come into play. And that is funded from a mix of government, um, U.S. government, plus um, some European governments, some companies, in the case of our report, um, some of the tech companies, and uh, as well as foundations. And then for our on-the-ground programmatic activities that we do, sort of building the capacity of journalists and activists to fight for democracy in their own countries. Much of that is funded by the U.S. government as U.S. government grants. Um, And then the final sort of activity that we do is advocacy, and that's all private donations um, to lobby uh, policymakers here in in D.C. and around the world to... uh, really make sure that democracy and human rights is infused in the actions of the U.S. Well, let's get to the report of the hour, and that would be Freedom on the Net 2019, The Crisis of Social Media. And of course, the subtitle to the subtitle, The Crisis of Social Media, is this sentence. What was once a liberating technology has become a conduit for surveillance and electoral manipulation. So let's start with the technology. What do you mean by surveillance and electoral manipulation? Sure. So surveillance, um, in this case, we look specifically at social media surveillance. And this is a different way that we think of surveillance. We've traditionally thought of it as, you know, what the NSA does and what sort of intelligence agencies do. Um, But what our research finds, and this is coming from the 65 countries that we cover in our report, that actually it's local law enforcement agencies that are conducting surveillance. It's the police and it's um, smaller uh, security agencies all around the world. And that they're specifically looking at social media as this treasure trove for a lot of juicy details about our political leanings, our sexual orientation, perhaps our religious beliefs, um, and then persecuting people based on the information that in many ways we are freely providing because we don't realize the consequences of engaging on these platforms. That's exactly right. I remember the first time that uh, Twitter and YouTube and all of these things were used in Arab Spring, which was how many years ago? And, And this was part of the the crowd, people going to the street saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. And then it could be traced back to them. They were there. Mm -hmm. And there were political consequences. There were personal and familial consequences to that activity. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how our uh, views on technology have really changed. And we sort of swing on the pendulum (laughs) from extremes. Sometimes we're thinking that technology and social media is going to solve all of our problems and it's going to bring democracy and human rights uh, to, you know, the darkest corners of the world. And then in other times, you know, there's scandals like Cambridge Analytica um, or Russian interference where we think, oh, my goodness, what have we unleashed on ourselves? Um, You know, social media might be the worst thing for our society. So, you know, our report is an attempt to take a more objective, sober, and global analysis of these issues and to to really try to pull out for for decision makers, for tech companies and civil society, what are the key issues that they should be paying attention about this year? Well, I want to take a slight 
detour because it's so key for me to what Freedom House does is that when you look at the quality of a society, including internet freedom, which has many attributes. So if you were just looking at freedom, you might ask, well, do you hold free elections and uh, do you educate women? In the case of internet freedom, you broke it down into three categories, obstacles to access, limits on content, and violations of users' rights. What were you looking for there? That's a great question. So, you know, the short answer of what Internet freedom is is simply that the rights that you have offline should be protected online. So the way that we have broken that out to take a really holistic approach um, to measuring internet freedom is first we look at obstacles to access. And this is looking at how easy it is to actually get online in a, in a country. So whether it's super expensive or whether women or LGBTQ minorities have different issues when they're trying to get online. Um, the second main area that we look at are limits on content. So basically, what does the Internet look like in each country? Um, in certain places, governments block websites. They remove political content that they don't like. Or there might be a spread of disinformation. So that third category is really about violations of user rights, where we're doing a deep dive into human rights online. We're specifically focusing on free expression and privacy. So here we'll rate free expression laws or surveillance laws, um, whether users are prosecuted or detained for their commentary online, um, and whether people are harassed by the state or other non-state actors. Well, obviously, there's a lot of data here. And one of the things I've always appreciated about any of the Freedom House reports is you identify all of these sub-attributes in great detail. You try to get them for all these countries you're looking at. And then you assign number ranges for each sub-attribute. And then you put all these things together and you come up with a rank between zero and 100. It's all transparent. You know what's going on there. (laughs) But you actually convert all of this to numbers. It's not just words, words, words. Exactly. Yes, that's I think I think it adds to the conversation of how to rank countries by actually distilling qualitative research that can be really text heavy into really easy to understand numbers. I think that is one of the goals of Freedom House research is to make some really complex issues, whether they're legal issues or, you know, really egregious violations to people's rights and distill them in a really easy to understand format. And I think the freedom on the net model of zero uh, being the worst of the worst and 100 points being the best of the best is super easy for people to understand. So that is also a way where we can compare what's happening in one country, say China, and say, how does that differ from something happening in Myanmar? So we have really clear numbers to showcase the differences there. One thing that we also see is, uh, you know, local activists and even our the the authors that we work with who are all based in country, um, they'll sort of brag about how their country is doing versus another, you know, so our Nigeria analyst is like, oh, you know, why can't we be like Kenya that, you know, gets a, a 28 <laughs> and instead, you know, we are in the 30s or the 40s, you know, we got to lobby our government to do better. So it has this interesting kind of uh, you know, simplification of it, but then also this competitive nature to it that I think as long as it's a competition to, you know, on who has greater protections for human rights, I mean, I think then we're, we're doing our job right. And I do want to say 
I just took a lark here uh, at describing how you do this. <laughs> you know, you probably can describe it much better than me. Happy to do so. Um, so Freedom on the Net is this uh, 12-month project, and we work together with over 70 local contributors in the 65 countries that we cover. That translates to roughly 87% of all internet users around the world. So we're, we're, we're able to get a pretty good snapshot of conditions um, on the internet today. And, um, you know, we, we, we go to, you know, significant lengths to get local experts who can talk about these issues, who can, you know, test out web connectivity in their own countries, conduct interviews. And then we bring them together. We travel the five continents, um, me and my team in New York, to hold these two-day regional meetings where we sort of form a consensus on each country's score. Um, you know, we sort of lock them in a room and feed them very good food um, as a as a way to uh, reward them for what's really a really arduous task of assigning, as you mentioned, these qualitative factors to a, a quantitative metric. And you mentioned China. They come in last. Instead of 100, they got 10. What's up with China? Yeah, so China's kind of the opposite of, of uh, internet freedom. <laughs> um, they have this uh, model of digital authoritarianism, we like to call it, and that's sort of channeling technology for societal repression. So rather than, you know, seeing technology as this way that's going to liberate us and, you know, may bring greater deliberative democracy, perhaps, um, shine a light on, you know, on corruption and um, be good for transparency. They're using uh, surveillance technology in particular, but also censorship as this way to scrub any um, critical posts that are on Chinese technology platforms. There's this whole system in place, the so-called Great Firewall, where uh, China employs, you know, tens of thousands of moderators to go over content to remove anything about issues, for example, related to the protests that are happening now in Hong Kong uh, around the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre. So it's a highly curated online landscape where where the impetus is on the state really decides what it is that the population sees and then also, you know, collects all sorts of data to make sure that they can also be fully in control over their citizens. The last time I was in China, I could see my Facebook page, but I couldn't post anything to it. It's like, well, that was, that was interesting. <laughs> like, hey, hey, can you post? No, I can't post. Can you post? No, I can't. It's like, okay, I guess we got a little bit of the picture there. The interesting part about it is that, you know, uh, the reason why things like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are blocked in China is because they are not, the Chinese authorities are not able to force them to remove, let's say, like political content on their platforms. That's something that they're able to do better with locally based, you know, Chinese. Chinese companies that as a condition of operating in the country, they have to comply with local laws, which in practice means um, violating the human rights of their users. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk. Adrian Shabazz is the Research Director for Technology and Democracy at Freedom House, while Ali Funk is a research analyst focusing on freedom on the net. They're here today with the Freedom House report, Freedom on the Net 2019, The Crisis of Social Media. 
Well, we heard who was worst. You always want to hear who's best. Iceland comes in with 95%, 95 ranking. Yes, it does. (laughs) So Iceland this year beat out Estonia for the top spot, (laughs) um, which, you know, is a talk about friendly competition. Um, Made waves in Estonia. It did make waves. Yes. So, you know, in the past. (laughs) Not Icelandic media, but Estonia was. I used to teach cybersecurity and and one day in every class would always be Estonia Day because they're that good. They do do a great job. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Iceland this year in 2019, it became the world's leader in internet freedom. Um, And this improvement was really driven by the fact that governments didn't arrest or detain anybody for their online expression um, over the past year. So, you know, the country as a whole, it really protects privacy. It protects free expression. It's, you know, online content is not censored by the government. And, you know, it's very easy to get online there. It's not super expensive. Women can get online. Users and more rural areas don't have a problem with getting online. Um, really, the only thing that was, you know, kind of troubling over the past year was there was a sophisticated nationwide phishing scheme. Um, but that's something that we're really <laughs> seeing globally, as we all know, if you check your email, we're constantly given <laughs> phishing schemes. Um, so it's that not is 100%. Not super... <laughs> Iceland. Yeah. No, but um, yeah, so Iceland, it took the lead. And I think Estonia now next year will try to try to take it back. Yeah, let's have some friendly competition to all get high scores. As a professor, I love that. That's really good. (laughs) That's my kind of competition. Now, of course, everybody wants to know where the U.S. is, and I see that they're number seven with a ranking of 77, down from 95 for Iceland. What do we get wrong here? So the United States is still, you know, a big protector of internet freedom. It's it's strongly a free country. And the online environment, um, the government does not censor a lot of content online in the U.S. Um, so, you know, websites aren't blocked and political content isn't removed like it might be in other countries around the world. Um, and there's still very strong protections for free speech online, thanks to the First Amendment. Um, where the U.S. really struggles um, is disinformation online. Um, and I think over the past year, one of the things that has been concerning for us is that there's been a lot of conversation about foreign interference in the U.S., you know, I think Russia in 2016 spreading uh, disinformation online is the perfect example. But over the past year, it's really domestic actors that are increasingly spreading this type of content. Um, And especially as we gear up for the 2020 election, um, it's something that uh, we're watching really closely. And then the the main reason for the U.S. decline this year, I should add that it's the third consecutive decline, um, is that we saw an increase in law enforcement and immigration officials expanding their surveillance of the public. So this is specifically being done through social media surveillance. Um, So particularly the Department of Homeland Security has been watching social media more than previously. Um, And then 
uh, CBP at airports have all, has also been increasingly searching travelers' phones at the border without any warrant or without any suspicion. And then we've seen a number of worrying examples where ICE and CBP were actually conducting social media surveillance in a way that was targeting constitutionally protected activities. So, for example, um, over the summer in 2018, ICE was actually going through Facebook to find examples of civic groups that were planning anti-Trump demonstrations um, around the immigration policies and gun reform policies. Um, so this has been really driving, uh, you know, a decline in the U.S. and it has, you know, really deteriorating effects um, on people's free expressions and freedom of association and assembly rights. And CBP is. Customs and Border Protection, they are one of the made agencies within the Department of Homeland Security. Now, the U.S. is seventh with a rating of 77. What about Russia? Russia is an interesting case. It's one of these countries that started off with a fairly open and freer Internet, let's say. And then throughout the years, I think um, the authorities in Russia have viewed the Internet with suspicion and sort of seen this as an instrument for what they would also term foreign intervention. As a result, we've seen the Internet being labeled by uh, Vladimir Putin as a CIA project, he called it. Um, he, and then you they've, mean our they've, CIA? <laughs> yes. And then passing all sorts of laws to bring the country almost more in line with China, which is a country that from the very beginning had a very closed Internet. So it's going to be interesting to see not only Russia, but then also other countries sort of in that region that are being pulled away from the open global Internet towards one of greater digital protectionism, or, or as we call it, like cyber sovereignty. So the, the infant of um, borders on the Internet. Now, Russia has a score of 31, and the U.S. is here at 77. So obviously, there's a big stretch between the two. And you, of course, show it in numbers. You show it in graphics. You talk about it in words. What, however you want to hear this or read it or consume it, rather, um, you've got it there. Now, there's a group of them in a set of numbers which are not free, such as Russia, down at 31. In the middle, there's a partly free. And and at the top, they're free. And that would be the U.S. has a free score and Russia has a not free. In the middle, with 56, is Ukraine, partly free, right between the two. Yeah, Ukraine is this interesting example where it's sort of on the front line of uh, Russian information operations and cyber attacks. Uh, you know, we can't forget that this is a country that is right now in conflict. Um, there are different ways that, um, you know, both foreign and then domestic problems that are also plaguing the country's democracy. So the way that they've reacted to um the war with Russia is to sanction and, and block all Russian platforms from being used in the country. So that means sort of the Russian equivalents of Facebook and Gmail um, and Google are all blocked in Ukraine. And that's something that we, you know, 
This is, at the end of the day, a violation of people's internet freedom in that you have a significant Russian-speaking population in Ukraine that actually use these tools. And I think that the the process of how these tools were blocked lacked transparency and judicial oversight. Um, and it was sort of done in this kind of emergency mode way um, that many Ukrainian activists themselves are unhappy about. And I think that indicates a, a government that isn't always necessarily trying to protect the human rights of their own citizens. Looking at Europe, all the countries are ranked free, except for Turkey, down there and not free with a ranking of 37. It's the exception. What's going on in Turkey? Oh, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> You're lucky that you have Adrian. He's our Turkey, one of our Turkey experts. So, uh, yeah, Turkey is is a, is a fascinating country, and I think there's a, an extremely vibrant civil society. I've been speaking with Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk about the Freedom House report, Freedom on the Net 2019, the crisis of social media. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. And in the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will be talking about the reemergence of psychedelic drugs, this time inside the medical establishment. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Adrian Shabazz and Ali Funk about the Freedom House report, Freedom on the Net 2019, the crisis of social media. Turkey is a a fascinating country, and I think there's an extremely vibrant civil society. Um, For many years, you know, there's been a tradition of critical, independent journalism. Um, and and the youth really have a fluency in using digital platforms um, to protest, to, to expose government corruption. Um, the problem is that I think as the ruling authorities there, and I'm talking really specifically about the, the uh, pa- 
political party of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's been the longtime ruler of Turkey now. 2014, there was um, something called the Gezi protest. And this is almost like a a big social movement that was protesting um, the the building of a mall in a very prominent park in Istanbul. And that sort of was was this um, straw that broke the camel's back in terms of driving the youth and, and critics of the government out onto the streets to protest. And, uh, you know, the ruling authorities didn't really take kindly to that. They started blocking social media. They started imprisoning um very prominent activists for their online activities. Uh, the amount of people who are uh, detained and have court cases against them for the crime of insulting the president has skyrocketed, and that's a crime now in, in Turkey. Um, so it's been it's been really, I think, depressing to see how over the years. I mean, the country has had to deal with a lot. You know, there's been terrorism um, from over the border in Syria. Um, there has been um, the attempted coup a few years ago. So as a result of all of these things, I think we've seen conditions for Internet freedom go down sort of in the same way that we've seen general democracy go down in that country. Turkey is sitting there at 37 and across the border, as you know, is Syria at 17, the third lowest. Syria is, is one of these fascinating and, and really challenging countries to cover because for a long time, it's almost been three or four different countries all in one. I mean, you had the areas of the country that were controlled by the so-called uh, Islamic State, where Internet access was just not allowed and, and people were severely punished for even trying to get online. Then you would have areas of the country that are controlled, you know, by... Uh, let's say, more moderate rebels, if you can call them moderate, where, you know, the conditions were a little bit better. You also had areas around the Turkish border where people were, were getting um, internet from Turkish ISPs, so almost like jumping over the signal from across the border. And then finally, um, areas that were controlled by the Syrian government that are still on Syrian ISPs. ISPs are internet service providers. Um and so we've we've seen now that as as the war has kind of calmed down, although you know it's still very tenuous there. Um, conditions are sort of just rem- have sort of flattened out, um, but still, it's it's one of the worst countries for internet freedom around the world. What it all speaks to me about is remember the good old days in technology when if you wanted to take over a country, you just you just took over the radio station, <laughs> the <laughs> radio station. It's like then you had everybody. You got to listen to me and that's it. So it's information yeah. and communication and authoritarianism taking over territories. They're all linked and always have been. It's been interesting to see how, you know, the effect that the Internet has on democracy around the world. And, you know, there are cases from Sri Lanka and Myanmar, um, kind of flashback to to Rwanda and and hate radio and the ways that the radio was used to spread incitement to violence. Um, And we continue to see that. And there's there's these, you know, awful rumors that get circulated, including in places like India and Mexico, that lead to somebody being killed by like mob violence. Um, you know, so I think it, it's it's about understanding that the the internet is sort of this double edged sword. I think we have to have a more nuanced understanding of what its impact on society is, and you know, just continually learning. I think in many ways we're still very much at the early phases. It's sort of a wild, wild west in terms of regulation. And over the years, 
I think we're going to see greater protections for privacy, um, for freedom of expression, and also, you know, for personal security come out. China, of course, is the worst with 10, and then Syria is number three with 17. Right in the middle is Iran, no surprise, with 15. But there are no ratings for Iraq or Afghanistan. Why not? That's just a, a, a matter of resources that, uh, you know, we started this report with 15 countries in 2009. And over 10 years, we've, we've tried to, to um, get more support for the report and to expand the countries. We try to cover, you know, sort of a, a diversity of different regime types and geographical areas and shapes and sizes. Um, so now we're, we're at the point where we're covering 65, which translates to around 87 percent of all Internet users. This could be dangerous for the people collecting the data. We take great lengths to make sure that um, that we, you know, dig- that the digital security of our analysts is protected. Um, in certain cases, you know, there are a few countries that probably wouldn't surprise you where we are forced to work with an analyst who's based outside of that country just for their own protection. Um, in other cases, there are activists who are very, you know who really follow these issues are really passionate and want to do the work. And so oftentimes they'll even reach out to us and, uh, you know, be like, how can I help? I'd love to contribute to this report um, using, you know, encrypted communications. And and in those cases, um, we we take great lengths in terms of protecting um, anonymity and privacy and working in secure ways. At this point, we have 3.8 billion people with Internet access. That's over half the people on the planet, and we're sure that the babies uh, are not accessing the Internet just yet. Uh, But we're talking about the greatest part of the adult population has uh, access to the Internet and is literate at some level. Uh, And yet I'm starting to see through your report that this business of interfering in elections uh, is this real cyber long reach uh, it's not just the U.S. Uh, with the between the federal indictments and the Mueller report, which laid out the activities of the Russians who sought to interfere in our 2016 U.S. election. Other countries have done it, and other countries have been victim to it. Yeah, I think um, that is something that we kind of figured out in the report. And we're still seeing that countries that are quite repressive, whether that's Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, are still trying to influence foreign governments' elections, particularly around democracies. The U.S. 2016 election is a you know great example of that. We can look at Ukraine, or we could look at Australia, who um, experienced a, a cyber attack that was traced back to China. Um, so foreign interference in the traditional sense, we're still seeing. But I think what Freedom on the Net 2019 kind of uncovered is how it's really the threat of domestic actors interfering in their own elections in order to win um, the vote. Mm-hmm. What Freedom on the Net 2019 really discovered is that it's increasingly domestic actors who um, represent a bigger threat to free and fair elections around the world because they've realized that they can control and manipulate the information space in a way that um, lends them more legitimacy and actually allows them to win the vote. Yeah, and I just, you know, adding on to that, 
It's been fascinating to see how the internet becomes a different place in the lead up to elections. So um, all of a sudden you see a rise of disinformation. You see certain websites being blocked. Um, prominent activists and journalists being arrested for what they're saying online. And so self-censorship kind of comes into the space. And I think, you know, governments, political candidates have, have understood that the Internet is sort of this battleground for, for um, you know, politicking. And as a result, um, what we saw, we, we looked at 30 countries that had elections over the past year. And in 26 of the 30 countries, there was at least one form of digital election interference. We then broke that down and we saw that uh, the most uh, prevalent tactic that was used was disinformation. Um, in 24 of the 30 countries, so the vast majority in countries all along the democratic spectrum, authorities had political candidates, uh, the government, and in some cases sort of these online mobs are using bots, um, misleading memes, and almost like creating these new echo chambers for disinformation in order to then uh, sway electoral outcomes. The second tactic that we saw is technical interference. And this is the ways that uh, many uh, government agencies around the world had actually blocked access to certain uh, news sites, um, the websites of opposition parties and candidates. They would engage in cyber attacks against people um, who are, you know, a leading contender in the race. Um, so that's something that we've, we saw in, in Cambodia, for example, where right before an election, the government decided to block 17 very prominent independent news websites. Um, or in Kazakhstan, um, you know, they weren't sure how the election was going, and so they just blocked all social media. Um, there are these countless examples where the authorities are sort of taking this blanket view towards just like censoring the Internet um, to in order to uh, to win the election. And then the more traditional heavy handed tactic that was in a dozen countries was just, you know, arresting individuals for what they're saying online, for criticizing the government, uh, for running a political campaign. So there's this variety of tactics. But I would say that the, the general takeaway is that in many countries, propaganda is now the weapon of choice over censorship, um, and I think that that's a that's a change in what we're than what we've traditionally seen. I think when we think about the internet, we think about you know blocking access to websites or removing certain pieces of content, and now we're seeing that propaganda is working better than censorship in some ways because of this aspect of plausible deniability where. Uh, the government or leading political leaders are able to say, hey, that wasn't me or, um, you know, I'm not paying for that. that this is all grassroots and authentic um, voices. But in actuality, they're working together and coordinating with political operatives on these really well-resourced disinformation campaigns. It's been 10 years. You've been working on this year after year at the same time. Technology is changing all the time. Has that affected the questions you asked or or your evaluation of of what's going on in the world? Yes, it certainly has. And it's made it it's made my job certainly very exciting um, and, and very busy in terms of, uh, you know, we also we always have to reflect and to say, what are the big issues that we want to look at this year? And how do we need to update our methodology to make sure that we do? answer the big questions. So this year, um, you know, one of the interesting things was we know that governments have been paying uh, or sort of employing people to monitor social media. Uh, and that takes a very, let's say, like low tech 
um, uh, approach um, in countries like Iran, where you actually have people that have volunteered to kind of just scroll through Facebook and find un-Islamic content online and then report it to the authorities. Now, what we're seeing is that with advances in, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and natural language processing, that whole, you know, these really sophisticated data analytical tools, they're sort of automating mass surveillance on social media, making use of the latest technologies to to spot that needle in the haystack of, you know, that one person who's criticizing the government that in an earlier time, probably that, you know, Facebook post that maybe only got two likes. Uh, but now we're seeing a, a rise in the, the number of countries that are arresting individuals for what they're saying online. This other aspect to it is, you know, on the digital uh, election interference side, authorities are, are changing tactics. And I think disinformation has really um, altered. It used to be that, you know, we think of it as this po- posting misleading memes and, and headlines and all of that stuff. But where the direction that it's going is that if you look at what happened in Brazil or in India, for example, the political parties there were very savvy in that, you know, they weren't pumping out disinformation on on Facebook, let's say, or on Twitter, like these kind of more open channels where, uh, you know, everybody can see the horrible things that they're posting online. Instead, they took it to these closed, more private networks. In the case of Brazil, they scraped uh, the Bolsonaro campaign, scraped people's phone numbers off of Facebook, and then added them into these kind of private chat groups based on their uh, age, location, and income level, and then just bombarded them with thousands of messages a day about, you know, misleading claims about their opponent or about how, you know, how great Bolsonaro is. On the flip side, in India, uh, the BJP, which is the ruling party of uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, they decided, let's build a whole new app where we just do all this. So they, there's this Narendra Modi app that anybody can actually go and, and download from the App Store. And you can volunteer to be this sort of propagandist for the party. Um, and it's this entire social network where they almost gamify propaganda. And you can sort of, there's a leaderboard of the top people who are posting propaganda and misinformation in India. While I have a lot of questions on your long list of recommendations, uh, you do remind me of at least two of them. One is under protecting sort of future media surveillance in government policy, restrict export of sophisticated monitoring tools. And I'm thinking of the Chinese firm Septian, S-E-M-P-T-I-A-N, and it's Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, Aegis Surveillance System. And I guess they're selling that everywhere. Yeah, that was that was one of the, the companies that we profiled in our report, as well as another Chinese company named uh, Nolasis. And what's fascinating is is you know there are there are international trade conferences where companies from China, but not only, you know, also from India, from Israel. Um, from many European countries and from the United States are freely selling highly sophisticated software and hardware to um, some pretty nasty regimes. I mean, there's one in Dubai that's happening in March. They're selling, uh, you know, it's restricted to only law enforcement and security agencies of the Middle East. But these are governments that 
um, have a track record of targeting nonviolent political activists um, with, you know, military grade tools, not to mention, you know, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the the Saudi uh, journalist who had his the phone devices hacked um, through some of this technology. So I think we need to, you know, there, there's a, a gentleman named David Kay, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, and he's actually called for a moratorium on sophisticated surveillance tools. So just let's let's hold off on selling these until we can actually get to grips with what the impact is on human rights and actually have some some good regulations on who we can and cannot sell it to. I'd also add that there's been some really good movement by the U.S. government on restricting the selling of surveillance technologies. Um, so I think this is something where Freedom House sees um, there can be some positive change here. And I think also when you think about mainstream media, one of the reasons mainstream media is not, you know, fixated on what do we say about whoever and disinformation is that they have ethics and standards practices all aimed to report the truth. They have editors. They require corrections and errors in reporting. And this is self-administered. Right now in in social media, you have no self-administered controls. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Um, I think we're sort of coming to grips with social media and what it means to have these open platforms for, uh, you know, what they call user generated content um, or just, you know, places where anybody can go and, and post their opinions and share stories. There are ways that, um, you know, obviously these companies have content moderation standards. And so we call we always push them to to implement them with the full most transparency so that we can all see, you know, how they're doing on it to report on how much content they take down and for what reasons. Um, But I think, you know, where we're moving perhaps is towards a greater uh, push towards community policing, if that makes sense. Like, I think policing is probably not the right word, but where the community of people online sort of almost hold themselves in check. And so I think from a technological standpoint, if we can create Uh, you know, the next generation of social media and messaging apps where you're actually empowering individuals, like almost like a group administrator or like, you know, just somebody who bears a sense of responsibility for um, curating what is happening in the group. I think that would lead to a generally more constructive environment for for expression online. But we haven't gotten to the builders of a technology being aware of human rights uh, implications. Uh, We haven't gotten to the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. We haven't gotten to several pages of questions here, (laughs) but I have every (laughs) confidence you're going to spend the next year putting together another report. So I hope you come back and and see us next year. Is that possible? Yes, Yes. with pleasure. Yeah, we'd be happy to. And thank you for reaching out to us for this. My guests today are Freedom House Research Director for Technology and Democracy, Adrian Shabazz, and Research Analyst Ali Funk. The report is Freedom on the Net 2019, The Crisis of Social Media. The report can be downloaded from freedomonthenet.org. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us psychedelics are back and your doctor may be prescribing them. Daniel, welcome to Tech Nation. Great to be here. 
Now, I want to ask you about this, you know. Of a certain age, everyone was kind of tripping out here in San Francisco. <laughs> Psychedelics were great. And that was many places in the, in the United States and around the world. But that's so old. That's last millennium. Are you telling me psychedelics are back? Well, was the, the, one of the proponents of that was Timothy Leary. He had that famous quote, was it? Drop in, drop out, and tune on. Tune, tune in. Tune in. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that era was, uh, you might re- remember it better than me. Uh, but... Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't that Robin Williams' line about if you remember it, you weren't there? Right. If, if you have to ask me, you'll never know. Also. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the psychedelic era really, I think, evolved in places like Haight-Ashbury down the street from where we're recording this. And uh, because of some of the alternative elements there, it became a bit, you know, criminalized the use of those uh, of those synthetic or even natural um, hallucinogens substance yeah, yeah like you know uh, psilocybin is derived from mushrooms uh, uh, ayahuasca and others have been used uh, in cultural ways isn't uh, that from cactus yeah for you know millennia in certain in cultures in indigenous worlds uh, across the world but what's been fascinating over the last uh, 20 years plus has been a big movement to understand that the role of some of these um, elements can be used in terms of quote-unquote psychedelic medicine. Um, And that's really been highlighted uh, to the point where Johns Hopkins Medical School, very famous medical center in Baltimore, has opened up a research center, $17 million center to study psychedelics like psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in quote-unquote magic mushrooms, to study its impact in treating things like chronic depression. Um, There's work as well looking at uh, LSD for issues like anorexia, addiction, and depression. And these sorts of psychedelics uh, seem to play a role across many addiction-type areas in very powerful ways. And it's being fast-tracked through the FDA. So this is not fly-by-night. There's an organization called MAPS, um, which has really helped drive a lot of this work, led by psychiatrists and mental health professionals, and is showing a lot of promise. Now, let me ask you, is this the kind of thing where they're looking at like the active ingredient in psychedelics and trying to drugify them, if you will? Well, many of your listeners may be familiar with, you know, often a party drug called E or ecstasy. Uh, The active ingredient there is something called MDMA. Uh, And if you bought it off the street, let's say, uh, you might not know who it comes from, how pure it is. Is it laced with something else? Well, in these very... uh, well-designed, FDA-approved trials. For example, MDMA has been used with what's called assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, And they've published several trials now where giving a single dose or doses over a couple-month period blended with actual psychotherapists in the treatment arm of folks with very recalcitrant PTSD, some are military members, some are others, they had... uh, Um, 54% of the participants no longer qualified for the diagnosis of PTSD compared to the control group that just got psychotherapy alone where 23% um, no longer had symptoms of PTSD. So that's an encouraging example of why that is now going through the next uh, phase where this may become literally a tool that your psychiatrist or psychologist could prescribe to help with things like PTSD. Um, Other groups have, again, mentioned using psilocybin, again, made very specifically and dosed to look at elements like chronic depression, um, uh, addiction to things like opiates, but also for anxiety, particularly end-of-life anxiety. They studied um, patients entering hospice after a cancer diagnosis and giving a single, quote-unquote, trip under the guidance of psychotherapists dramatically lowered their anxiety, improved their connection to their loved ones, even maybe extended their certainly their quality of life. Some of this work was led by 
Tony Bassas. And I think it's an example of where this fuel can go to make a big impact when it becomes utilized in, in the proper ways. What's TRIP, T-R-P-P? Well, many of us don't want to take actual psychedelics. We're now in an exponential age of virtual and augmented reality. Um, now you can buy an Oculus type headset uh, for so a couple those hundred big, dollars. Uh, virtual reality headsets looks like right, feel like you're going scuba diving only you're dry. Yeah, and we've talked about some of our amazing applications from healthcare for training surgeons, but now also to take a virtual reality headset and bring it, let's say, into the procedure room. Someone who's stressed and anxious can go to the beach. Uh, there's a startup called Trip T R I P P, which has built a VR type platform to um, let's say model some of the things visually that reportedly are, are seen during let's say, a a psychedelic trip um, to help folks learn to do mindfulness training. I tried a demo of this and sort of as you breathe in, you see the light come into your lungs and as you breathe out, it comes out of you. Sort of if people imagine chakras, which are used in mindfulness meditation at times, it kind of can give you that augmented area there. So it's an example. It's early days, but has promised to help treat anxiety, maybe depression and other elements. Um, Other companies are blending antidepressants with virtual reality. So I think we're in an era now where given mental health is such a challenge and impacts so many in our society that we need new approaches, not just trying this SSRI and having side effects or doing everything through psychotherapy sessions, which many folks can't access, but to use new tools, whether it's a VR headset where you can bring folks together in a social way, whether we're seeing now the advent of digital health clinics, one in San Francisco called Meru Health is now providing a way to... uh, do treatment for depression and burnout, where you're connected to an actual psychiatrist. You go through a cognitive behavioral CBT type platform, something that's often done in person. CBT? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, yes. Um, And take that and move it into a digital realm in connection with an actual board-certified psychiatrist. And that can augment your ability to get treatment wherever you may be at lower cost. And we're starting to see major medical centers and others start to pay for those sorts of platforms. So part of our mental health, which is so fundamental to our overall health, can be mediated through some of these emerging platforms. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. And I would just add a little caveat, you know, in the mental health space, you know, we all have our ups and downs. There's a whole new set of tools that have exploded on the sort of app scene, um, things like Headspace and 10% Happier and a a few others uh, I have no connection with, but are things that you can try today to help you sleep better, um, there is even kid, the child versions that are helped your two or three-year-old learn to breathe and think through their, their body space. And I think the, the, the personalization and use of these kind of technologies, whether it's VR, AR, or just, AR, or just voice, uh, can really help us across society. Oh, we certainly have lots of options. That's for sure. Try them out. Try them out. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.